Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Last Sunday, we started a new series on the fear of the Lord, which in many ways is a continuation of a series three years ago on fear, how that we live in a culture of fear, where we fear everything, but apparently everything but the Lord. What we did last Sunday was we looked at the fear of the Lord throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And in reviewing, it occurred to me as I was going through it, that we looked at almost every section of Scripture. We looked at the Pentateuch, or the Torah, in Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. We looked at the wisdom literature. We read from Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, from the, Prover- uh, the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then in the New Testament, from the Gospels, from Matthew and from Luke, from the book of the Acts, from the Epistles, and finally from the book of Revelation. There was one portion of Scripture, one section of Scripture that I did not mention, and that is the writings or the historical books of the Old Testament. So let me remedy, the, remedy that now before we move on. Jehoshaphat, who was the fourth king after Solomon, was appointing judges with the requirement matching those that we saw last week in Exodus that Jethro told Moses, you, you can't take care of all these things, you can't micromanage, you need people to help you in the administration. And the number one qualification is they must be men who fear the Lord. This is from Second Chronicles 19. He appointed judges in the land in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you wherever you give a verdict, or whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. In Jerusalem also Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, priests, and heads of Israelite families to administer the law of the Lord and to settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem. He gave them these orders. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. What we saw last week is that the fear of the Lord is a pervasive and dominant theme throughout Scripture. And if that's the case, the question is, why is it something that seems to have been lost in the last generation or two in the church? I think the question we need to ask and what we will try to answer today is, what is the fear of the Lord? Now, it goes without saying, but let me just put it out front, that we want to answer this question according to the scriptures. What does the Bible say is the fear of the Lord? What we find is that in the Old Testament, there are two words in Hebrew that are used for fear. And in the New Testament, there's one word in Greek that describe the fear of the Lord. But first, we, I want to look at how fear is used generally in Scripture. Fear is described as experiencing terror or dread. Terror that is based on the recognition of potential danger or harm. And instructions were given to the Israelites about fighting the Ammonites. This is in Deuteronomy 2. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. And then in Psalm 103, or Psalm 105, as the psalmist writes about the events before the Exodus, 
He then struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their manhood. He brought out Israel laden with silver and gold from among the tribes. No one faltered. Egypt was glad when they left because dread of Israel had fallen on them. I think the pictures here are pretty clear. We live in an age of people speak of terrorism. We know what fear is in that regard. Terror and fear. Terror and dread. But it is also used to speak of reverence, of veneration, or of awe. In Leviticus 19, Each one of you must respect his mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Um, The ESB says, Every one of you should revere his mother and father. But the King James says, you shall fear every man his mother and his father. It is interesting that in English translations, even though the word in Hebrew or in Greek may be fear, in certain places they don't put the word fear, they use a word that they think better conveys the idea, that is, showing respect or showing reverence. Revere your parents. Because I think the translators recognize that when we are to fear our parents, our mother and our father, this does not mean that we are to feel terror or dread with regard to our parents. Whenever we come into contact with them, we shouldn't be trembling because we are afraid of them, but we should, in fact, respect them. We are not to be afraid of our parents as such, but we are, in fact, to reverence them or to show them respect. And as it's written in Leviticus, the verse ends, I am the Lord. God wants us to recognize that our parents, well, let me start over. God is not simply saying that we are to recognize that our parents are older than us, perhaps wiser than us, more experienced than us. That may or may not be the case. But in fact, they are our parents. They have been put in a position by God and we are to show respect because they have that position. They are God's representatives. Our parents are the people that God put in our lives. They're the ones who gave us life, but they're also the people who teach us and who train us and we are as such to show respect to them. Because of the dignity of their position, They are to be regarded with veneration, with honor, and with dignity. Not terror and not dread. So, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, are we talking about terror and dread, or reverence, veneration, honor, awe? I would say both of them are there. One is more dominant than the other. But both aspects are there when we talk about the fear of the Lord. The fear which is peculiar to the children of God is the fear of veneration and awe and honor. It is fear that leads us not to run away from God, but to turn to God and to do the things that he would have us do. So let's talk about the two types of fear and how they are used with regard to the fear of the Lord. First of all, the fear of dread and terror. The first recorded instance of any fear of God is that of dread and terror. It is a story I'm sure you all know well. It 
happened in the Garden of Eden, where God had placed Adam and Eve, a place of beauty, a place where they were to learn obedience. But they disobeyed him, and the result of that disobedience was that there was fear. The Lord comes down to the garden in the cool of the day, and the implication is this was his custom uh, to converse with Adam and Eve. He called to Adam. He, Adam, answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Adam experienced a dread at the presence of God. One might ask, was this appropriate? Was it right for Adam to feel this fear, to have dread with reference to God? Is this the kind of fear that we're talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord, commanded and commended in Scripture? Uh, Let's stop a minute. What would you have Adam do in that situation? God had given him a very specific command. He had broken that commandment. Now God comes down to the garden. Would it be appropriate for Adam to greet God with a sort of like a what's up? You know, what's going on? I think fear is, in fact, entirely appropriate on the part of Adam because he, in fact, has sinned against God. Is it right to be afraid of God? Well, yes. In this case, Adam had sinned against God. There were biblical grounds, if you wish, for him to be afraid of God. When we sin, we should not expect that everything is fine and that we can go along our merry way. As the Lord comes down to walk in the garden, Adam is gripped by fear, and rightly so. In Psalm 119, we read, My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. We find both aspects there. In Deuteronomy 17, we find Moses giving the rationale for judicial actions. Let me read this to you. The man who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God must be put to death. You must purge the evil from Israel. All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous again. The ESV has all the people will hear and fear. Interestingly, in Deuteronomy 17, the original offense may have been relatively insignificant. It's not there, but let's say a person litters. It's not a capital crime. But when a person shows contempt for God's appointed authority and for God's law, then it is, in fact, a capital crime. Man's disregard for the institution of law and the administration of law would be the reason for the death penalty. This sounds really cruel and, frankly, just unjust, unfair. But it is not the individual who is in mind, but society at large. When people will hear, if you disrespect, if you show disregard for God's law, um, they're going to kill you. Then people will hear and will fear. And hopefully, having feared, they will obey. And then in Deuteronomy 21, this may be more familiar to you. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, 
will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate to the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. This may sound just as unjust and as unfair, an overreaction to a willful kid. You know, the, so he doesn't listen to his parents. It's not the end of the world. Well, apparently it is. It is a serious matter. And it is, again, not simply this individual that is in mind, but the people at large. The nation will hear and will fear. The punishment will cause people to fear, and one may assume they will then obey. They will not be like this one who is put to death, but they will become obedient. At this point, we faced this last week, one might say, okay, that's fine, Damon, but that's Old Testament stuff. Those are the times of shadows. Now that we have come into the light in the New Testament, uh, this really doesn't seem appropriate. Well, let me read to you from Hebrews 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the Deuteronomy 17 passage. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hard words indeed. I think part of the reason why these sound so harsh to us and unfair, perhaps an overreaction, is that we hold an unspoken assumption that human beings are purely rational beings. That if you could sit down with people and talk to them, you could convince them of the folly of their way and they would in fact change. So according to this assumption, you tell someone what they should do and you say, if you don't do this, then there will be consequences. Then they will say, oh, okay, I'll do the right thing. But we are not merely rational beings, are we? Um, Let me ask you a question without being too personal. Um, Are there things that you know you should not do Let's talk about diet. Okay? Are there things you know that you should not eat? And you, I mean, you looked at all the, you know, all the stuff on the side of the packaging and it tells you cholesterol and all that kind of stuff. And you eat it anyway. But listen, if you're a rational person, wouldn't you do the right thing? 
If somebody tells you, if you eat this, it's not good for you. So you think everyone will avoid that? We're not purely rational beings. We like to do what we like to do. And the purpose, I believe, in Deuteronomy of saying, listen, if somebody shows disregard, you can't just sit down and reason with people. Fear has a very real role in society where people are like, oh, this person showed disregard for God's law and he was put to death. I need to make sure I don't do that same thing. It isn't simply a matter of reasoning it out. Um, and I see people doing this with children, but even with adults, you, you can you can spell it all out for adults, and they'll still they'll still do whatever they want to do, unless the element of fear has been introduced. Okay, he said that's fine. What about terror and dread with regard to the fear of the Lord? I think it's clear that such feelings are not necessarily wrong. We need to realize there are times when we are afraid of God and not because of God's grace, but there's just something in us we know, okay, we've done something that we should not do. But positively, there is a time when God's grace sort of opens our eyes and we realize there are severe consequences, there are dire consequences to doing these things that I should not do. God is holy. God is passionately opposed to all sin. He doesn't take sort of a, eh, whatever, you know, you know, you can do what you want. God is just. God will punish all sin. We should not be shocked. We should not be offended when we read of God's anger. Isaiah 42 who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? This is what God did. For they would not follow his ways. They did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning wrath, his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. In Ezekiel 21, I will pour out my wrath upon you and breathe out my fiery anger, anger against you. I will hand you over to brutal men, men skilled in destruction. Romans 2, but for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. 2 Thessalonians 1, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In Hebrews 10, which you just read, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In Revelation 6, they called on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This is the way it is. But imagine for a moment, let's step back a minute. Imagine for a moment that you are along some railroad tracks and you see someone walking down the middle of the railroad tracks. And maybe half a mile back, you see a train that is coming down the tracks. 
And this person doesn't seem to notice. This person is not getting off the tracks. What's wrong with this person? Well, there are one of two possibilities, at least two. The first is that the person may in fact be deaf or listening to their iPod or on their cell phone. They are ignorant of the presence of the train and there is in fact danger coming down the track. The second possibility is that they are fully aware that the train is coming and they're insane. They simply think that the train will not hurt them. The person is oblivious to the danger or does not respond in an appropriate way. Such a person is out of touch with reality. He or she has no fear. They are not afraid of the train coming down the track. In the same way, the only reason that one does not fear the Lord, does not have the fear of the Lord, is because he or she is out of touch with reality. They do not realize who God is. They do not realize who they are. What about a child of God? We are the people of God. God has saved us. We've been adopted. We've been accepted by the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. It seems that we should not have any fear at all. In fact, in 1 John, John writes, And so we know and rely on the love of God, or the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. Verse 18. This is 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. This passage here seems to negate everything I've said last week and today because it seems that the fear of the Lord has no place in the life of a child of God who is filled with the love of God. Well, I'm convinced that John is not negating everything that's written in the rest of Scripture. Rather, he is telling us that if we embrace God's love in Jesus Christ, the overall mood of our relationship with God is, in fact, to be seen in love and not fear and dread or terror of God. Yet there still is a place for fear in our lives. We've talked before that we we speak in terms of creation, fall, redemption. And one might be tempted to say that fear first began when Adam and Eve sinned. But let's go back to creation. God said to Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. I don't know that Adam experienced fear as we do since sin has come into the world, but there's certainly a place for fear there where these are the consequences. You can do, you can eat from everything, but if you eat from this tree, you in fact will die. If God determined that the fear of his judgment was a legitimate basis for motivating Adam to obey him, how much more is it a necessary motive for us who, even though we are redeemed, are still people of sin in a world that appeals to our sinful nature? 
We read this last week, 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on him as father, you're a child of God. God is your father. Who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. As long as we are here on this planet, we are to be marked by fear. It is a holy fear. It is not a crippling uh, uh, dread or terror. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him, or due him, for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. For us as God's people, during the time of our exile here on earth, as we are pursuing a life marked by the fruits of the Spirit, we are in fact to be marked by fear and trembling. Because we realize how weak we are, how frail we are, how sinful we are. Humility and contrition, in fact, recognize these things. We are truly weakened. We are not self-confident. We should not be. We should not have a sense of self-sufficiency. And our weakness should provoke us to a proper fear. We've talked about terror and dread. Let's now talk about veneration and awe. Without watering it down or diluting the fear of the Lord as terror and dread, the dominant theme through the rest of Scripture is, in fact, about reverence for God or awe in the presence of God. This is the fear of the Lord that our text refers to. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is not talking about being terrified or filled with dread, but being filled with reverence and, and respect and honor for who God is. This is what we read last week in Jeremiah. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me. They will always fear me for their own good and the good of the children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing them good and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. As I said, when we read of the fear of the Lord, this is the fear that most generally is being spoken of. And we see this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's begin in the Old and then come to the New Testament. There are three incidents in the Old Testament that I think are familiar to most people that speak of people who are filled with the fear of the Lord. The first is the story of Jacob. Jacob has left home because he has deceived his father. He has stolen what belonged to his brother. His brother wants to kill him. And so his mother and father send him away to go to her relatives um, well, the first night he's, he's traveled, he decides to sleep. He stops and he sleeps. And this is what we read. This is Genesis 28. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. 
All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on the journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Jacob has a dream and wakes up and has a profound awareness that God is in that place. How awesome is this place? The God of all creation, the God who made all things, who sustains all things, was in that place. The God who makes covenants and keeps covenants, keeps his word, was in that place. And so he was afraid. But what kind of fear was it? Was it terror? Was it dread? Was it fear that made him run away? Not at all. It was, in fact, fear that led him to worship God in faith and in trust. God had made a promise to him. Jacob accepted his promise and he worshipped God in this place. The second story is the story of Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now here we might mistake this for terror or for dread. But I would argue that this is in fact reverence and awe. Moses hides his face because he believes that he should not look upon the person of God. He did not wish to dishonor God by looking upon him. And so he hides his face. He does not run away. He stays where he is on holy ground as Jacob did. Jacob did not run away. It is, not, it is terror that causes us to run. It is reverence that causes us to worship. The third incident is found in, in Isaiah chapter 6. The story of Isaiah's vision in the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each one with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. Unlike Moses, who was afraid to look at God, Isaiah is afraid because his eyes had seen the King, the Lord of glory. But again, this fear does not cause him to run. It's not terror. It's not dread. If you read the rest of the passage, God says, who is going to do this work for me? And as Moses said, here I am. Isaiah also says, here I am, send me. This is genuine fear, the fear of reverence, that does not cause us to turn away from God, but to turn to God. And then we have several in the New Testament. I'll only mention one incident. This is found in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus called his disciples. When he had finished speaking, this is Jesus, he said to Simon, this Peter, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. There's a contradiction, an apparent contradiction in this story. How is it that Peter can say to Jesus, Leave me. Go away from me. I am a sinful person. And then he gives up everything and follows Jesus. Because the fear he had was the fear of reverence and of respect. He recognized who Jesus was. Not entirely, not fully, but he recognized something about him that he was worthy of respect. And at this point, of worship. That's why he falls before Jesus in an act of veneration and reverence and fear but not fear that causes him to run away, but fear that causes him to leave everything and to follow Jesus. One of the problems I think we have when we talk about fear, the fear of the Lord, is that we assume that to be a Christian means to be comfortable. And I don't mean in material things. I just mean that our relationship with God is, should be one of comfort, that we, we can rest in God's presence. And that's certainly part of what it means to be a Christian. But there's a difference between resting in God's presence and being casual, I think overly informal, where we might see God, I think C.S. Lewis put it, as our celestial chum. There needs, in fact, to be a sense of respect and of reverence. And that reverence, if we might wonder, I don't know if I have the fear of the Lord. Okay, I, I, yeah, I'm afraid of God, but is that 
a terror fret, a fear? Is that a dread fear? Or is that reverence? Is that awe? I think we need to ask ourselves, what is that fear doing to you? Is it drawing you to God? Or is it pushing you away? If it's pushing you away, I think then that's terror and that's dread. But that which is reverence, as with Peter, causes us to fall at his feet. And we may say to God, listen, you need to get away from me. I am a wretch. I am a terrible, I am a sinner. And yet, by God's grace, we give up everything and follow him. Or we'd be like Isaiah when God says, who will do this? I need someone to do this job. And by God's grace, we say, here I am. I'll do it. I've read a lot of scripture today, covered a lot. Let me see if I can bring it down to a simple conclusion. The fear of the Lord is the mark of a child of God. One can, I think, rightly say, if there is no fear of the Lord, then one needs to say, am I in fact a child of God? It's like the person on the railroad track who's walking and is oblivious. Either he's deaf or he's crazy, he's out of touch with reality. In the same way, I would say the majority of people on this planet today do not fear God. They have no sense of the reality of God. But we who are God's people recognize that there is sin in the world, that Christ has come to pay the penalty for sin, that our sins have been forgiven. Um, The fear of the Lord is the mark of a child of God. From Psalm 130, But with you there is forgiveness of sins, therefore you are feared. And the fear does not drive us from God. The fear brings us to his feet. And there we worship him. The Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will look at where does the fear of the Lord come from? What are the ingredients? What is the source? How is it that I, as a child of God, can be marked by the fear of the Lord? And again, the Lord willing, we will look at this in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Father, we've covered a lot of territory today. I pray that by your Spirit, you would bring it to our memories from time to time in the coming week. It seems in this world, people are very much afraid. But of all of the wrong things, they have no fear of the Lord. We who are your people have been delivered from sin. We who are your people, by your grace, see you more clearly than those who are not your people. And we recognize you as infinitely perfect and holy and just. And it should cause us to fall to our knees in worship. And like Peter said, Go away from me. We are, I'm a sinful person. But by your grace and by your spirit, may we have the proper fear of the Lord that leads us to worship and to obedience and to mission, as we see with Isaiah. We are not purely rational beings. So while while this sermon is a sermon of words, by your spirit, may you work in our hearts. 
Help us to see the truth of this. And may we not be hearers only, but doers of the word. I thank you that you've brought us together today on this rainy day. We're grateful for this Ezra's first Sunday together with us. Watch over him and Zibi, we pray. And now as we meet together to discuss um, the business of this congregation, may your spirit guide and direct us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.